This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. Hi, my name is Fran Garrett, Director of Global Markets, Risk, and Securities Lending at RMA. Today we're joined by Tom Whiff, Chair of the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, or the ARC, and is also Vice Chairman of Institutional Securities at Morgan Stanley. With the anticipated end of LIBOR coming over the next two years, we're here with Tom to discuss the importance of your LIBOR transition plan and some of the milestones with timelines ahead over the next year and a half. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Fran. So can you discuss ARC's progress in promoting the transition from LIBOR to SOFR since you took over as chair in April? Yeah, thank you, Fran. I mean, we've really tried to continue along the good work that has been uh, sort of going on since the initial uh, formation of the ARC in 2014, which was to provide tools to the market to ensure that people have the ability to transition smoothly uh, as possible, uh, you know, away from LIBOR and into uh, and into alternative reference rates for dollar LIBOR, that being uh, the secured overnight financing rate SOFR. So as we've moved forward on that, what we've really done over the past year uh, was put together several improved uh, pieces of fallback language for floating rate notes, syndicated loans, bilateral loans, securitized products for those who continue to use LIBOR but would like to have a, uh, a much safer landing at the cessation of LIBOR. So these fallbacks provide for a series of steps that get people from LIBOR to SOFR uh, in, in, in a much more uh, clear way than contracts that were written long before this. So that work is well underway. Uh, again, these fallbacks are in place, but we also believe the best course of action is to begin issuing cash products directly using SOFR now that we're beginning to see more and more liquidity, uh, particularly in the floating rate note market. But for those unable to do so at this time, the fallback language does provide a methodical process to get from LIBOR to SOFR. Uh, in April, uh, we also published a user's guide to SOFR, uh, and that helps to explain how market participants can be begin using cash, uh, using SOFR and cash products today. So implicit in that publication is a recognition that we can all make significant progress on our transitions today without a forward-looking term SOFR, which does not yet exist. So following that work, uh, and we had our uh, roundtable at NYU back in June, we did publish our 2019 incremental objectives uh, at the half-year point, which really outlined our key milestones uh, to prepare market participants as we began approaching what is now uh, now beyond the two-year point uh, to the uh, to, to the end of uh, to the end of LIBOR, and those those were uh, really five uh, points that we laid out first and. Uh, certainly building market liquidity and driving demand for SOFR, creating and implementing robust fallbacks, which we've basically completed for the most part, enhancing education and outreach uh, to receive public feedback and to ensure market readiness. Uh, this is just an ongoing uh, piece of work that's been done by our, uh, by our outreach subcommittee. Also coordinated across the national working groups to, to the extent that we can and if possible have consistency on how we're all approaching this. Obviously there's different timelines and different challenges in every market, but uh, to some degree having coordination across these groups has been, uh, has been extremely helpful and I think uh, educational for all of us. Uh, and, and then also launching a consumer products focused working group, which obviously when we think about consumer products in this transition, we want to make sure that we hold that all to the highest standard. 
What are you focused on currently from this list? As we mentioned, consumer products is the key. We've had uh, an enormous uh, degree of success in the U.S. mortgage market uh, across uh, the GSEs, uh, Fannie and Freddie, the home loan bank system, and among, with that among their regulator, the, uh, the FHFA. Uh, so what we've really seen uh, is the message we've got is it's important to act now, particularly when it re relates to consumer mortgages, floating rate mortgages, uh, where to a large degree there's, there's significant refinancings that take place, so a new issue happens all the time. So we do have a unique opportunity to, uh, to convert to SOFR uh, in this very important part of the economy uh, in, in a much more direct way. So the ARC has, has really tried to emphasize that. This is paramount, obviously, across the board, but especially important for consumer products. We want to make sure that, uh, that we've put solutions in place well before LIBOR ends for these products. The work ARC released recently shows that this is possible. Over the past few months, the ARC has released a number of documents to further our work in the consumer market. Uh, including uh, a codified set of guiding principles for the Consumer Products Working Group, a white paper showing how SOFR could be used in adjustable rate mortgages, uh, improved fallback language for LIBOR-based adjustable rate mortgages that continue to be printed. Notably, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac publicly endorse this fallback language and, uh, and intend to adopt it for the uniform adjustable rate mortgages uh, right now in the first uh, quarter of 2020. And most recently, there have been announcements from both uh, Fannie and Freddie and the FHFA uh, that they will be putting out a consumer-based adjustable uh, rate mortgage that references SOFR uh, in the very near term. And that also follows along with some, uh, some considerable uh, regulatory touch from the FHFA uh, that will uh, reduce exposure to LIBOR among these entities very shortly. When we think about the, the mortgage market, it's really clear that we've got, uh, we've got a position where uh, the market on new issue can begin to move forward uh, a bit more seamlessly and ahead of that. And as we said at the beginning, uh, consumer products needed to, need to be treated with the highest standard of care as we go forward. Additionally, the ARC is also working hard to ensure market readiness. So in September, we released a practical implementation checklist for SOFR adoption. We've got, uh, we've got checklists out there now that people in the market can draw upon and then uh, overlay those against their organization's progress and see how they're doing against that. But it covers a number of different areas, including how you govern your program, uh, communication strategy, exposure scoping, product strategy, risk management, contract remediation, technology readiness, accounting, reporting, and taxation implications. And this is really, really meant to help market participants uh, to think through the steps that they can take in their own organizations to prepare for this important transition. So what are the ARC's priorities for the months ahead? As we move through time now, I think with, uh, with a vast majority of the tools on the table for market participants uh, to actually move forward in the transition, you know, our key really now is, is develop, thinking about how to develop more and more liquidity uh, in underlying SOFR products in both cash and derivatives. You know, at this point, we've seen well over $300 billion in SOFR cash issuance uh, and really promising developments in the SOFR futures and swaps markets, although market uh, liquidity is still notably less than comparable LIBOR products, we are seeing, I'd say, very, very considerable, uh, considerable progress. On the other side, I do think that 
uh, taking a page from the Sterling Risk-Free Working Group, which has, uh, has been a bit more date-specific uh, on their work. I think it's time now for the ARC, as, we, uh, as, we, as we've now are inside the two-year mark, to begin really thinking about providing you know, a series of more date-specific goals for people in the market, uh, because it certainly seems that uh, since we have now crossed into this sort of less than two-year period, uh, interest in this and preparation has really gone straight up. So more and more and more we are seeing market participants who have been uh, working through preparation and so forth becoming uh, significantly uh, accelerated by the timeline now. So we're beginning to you know, really believe that it's important now for the ARC to provide a different degree of guidance than we have in the past. So we've spent the last several years building the appropriate tools, whether that be fallbacks, user guides, uh, and working through all that. But at this point, I think uh, we, as we approach the new year, uh, our goal is really going to be about how do we provide uh, you know, a bit more explicit direction uh, and some clearer guidance for people in the market that they can draw upon as recommendations uh, as we move through time. Uh, so as we see liquidity grow, uh, we try to balance that with, you know, across the board, conditions now exist for people to think about the, uh, the transition actually in real life terms. So with a, a vast majority of the tax, regulatory, and accounting issues nearly solved, those who want to convert don't have to, don't have to wait for answers to those questions any longer. So the way we've sort of described the environment today is that conditions exist that are favorable to those who want to convert or those who want to use SOFR. We are awaiting certain catalysts and that really gets how we get back to liquidity. So the story around this has been how can we divine certain things and what are the things that we see on the horizon? So we're very focused on, uh, on the uh, ISDA protocol and for those who aren't familiar, the ISDA protocol is a way that uh, people in the market on derivatives can actually agree to a protocol which will uh, describe the steps you take at the cessation of LIBOR to get from LIBOR to SOFR. ISDA has published what, the, uh, what these uh, price adjustments will be in terms of credit uh, and in terms of term. Uh, we are still waiting to see if there is going to be a solution on the idea of pre-cessation, which is a, a legal matter that's very important to this, uh, this process. But at the point that protocol becomes available, people in the market, again, will have the ability to view their post-2021 outcomes. So if you think you've got tax and regulatory and accounting issues nearly solved, and you can actually convert without any penalty on that, and you have a sense of what your outcome looks like from a price perspective, because ultimately those adjustments will be up on a Bloomberg screen fairly shortly, knowing the economics, knowing the ability to get there, people should be thinking about, do I really want to go through the process of actually executing the protocol, or can I just go to the market and begin to convert? So we think that there's a chance post that uh, fallback to begin to see some voluntary conversions, which you think are super important to the process, and that's where market participants can really control their own destiny. We think that's super important. Additionally, uh, one of the major industry events we'll see is that uh, in October, both the CME and LCH will be converting their discounting methodologies from Fed funds to SOFR. That's really important uh, because that will eventually begin to drive more liquidity in SOFR as, uh, as, as uh, participants will exchange their Fed funds for SOFR, will receive basis swaps. Those basis swaps to some degree have to be traded back into the market. Some may want to hold those hedges, some may want to trade those hedges, but we will have visibility on, the, uh, on SOFR uh, well out beyond the points on the curve that we see today. So that's, an, again, an important point when we see price transparency, we're going to see more liquidity, and all those 
those things combined should sort of put us in a place where people are going to be, t again, looking to take more action, looking to control their own destiny in terms of risk management. Uh, and we think that that should be important and also will force people to be uh, prepared from a systems and, a, and an accounting perspective for these changes. Great. And, you know, with regard to liquidity, uh, SOFR adoption has been better in certain products, such as floating rate notes, than in others, including loans. What is causing this and how can it be remedied? So the pace of SOFR adoption has been uh, asymmetric among products, mainly because of the extent to which market participants feel that they can utilize the products to help them with today's business needs. They've also uh, been a matter of, uh, to some degree, uh, the ability to actually amend something post new issue. So I think floating rate notes is a great example. Uh, to change the reference rate currently on a floating rate note uh, in the United States for the most part in dollars, uh, you need 100% bondholder approval. So there is a real uh, focus on not adding to that problem. So issuers have begun to go directly to SOFR or to use ARC fallback language if they want to use, continue to use LIBOR. But what we found is that the ability to sort of change outcomes in floating rate notes in particular is quite limited, as opposed to derivatives or loans where there's an ability to use protocols or amendments to change those things. So, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of demand for SOFR futures because market participants are beginning to utilize those to hedge risks to their changes in the repo market. Uh, you know, this is a market risk that SOFR-based products can hedge more efficiently other than tools repo traders have been using for years. And, Fran, as you know, for many years, the effective hedging in repo has been very, very reliant on euro dollars, uh, and uh, repo desks have been very comfortable owning that basis risk. Today, utilizing SOFR, which is repo, uh, the ability to hedge repo books using SOFR futures and swaps uh, it certainly reduces that basis risk and reduces the bid offer cost that we see in the businesses. Uh, you know, th there's a market, uh, we can see these tools uh, are much significantly more efficient. So as we go through sort of product by product by product, what we find is that th there's a necessity uh, that's driving this. And like everything in our business, it's, it's interesting to now speak about things that are happening because of economic concerns, financial concerns, as opposed to the last few years spending about hypotheticals and theoreticals about is this going to happen and how is it going to happen. The fact remains right now, a floating rate note issuer is much better served using SOFR uh, than using LIBOR even with the fallbacks. Uh, significantly, uh, we're seeing, re again, the repo market uh, using these for hedges. Uh, and we think that you know, as we move forward, we should see similar activities in, in derivatives once the protocols become available, and in loan markets once people begin to you know, gain a greater understanding of the difference between the amended uh, fallbacks that we have put out from the ARC and the hardwired fallbacks, which provide, uh, to some degree, much, much greater certainty. So what is the current state of play on term SOFR, and how would the market set its expectations? So we've got two flavors of term SOFR. The first is that, uh, as you may know, the New York Fed will, uh, will be publishing compounded averages of SOFR in the first half of 2020, very shortly. It is expected that these backward-looking term rates will have some utility for the loan market and other markets. So if you think about this, we're going to have a 30, 90, and 180-day point on the curve, which will be a backward-looking calculation of, of SOFR compounded that those in the market can utilize for, uh, for particular products where, in many cases, A, they don't have the ability to, uh, to compound interest in their systems, or B, where, uh, where borrowers actually need to know their payment well in advance and can't do the traditional compounding in arrears that we have in the floating rate note market. So that 
that's the first half, and we think that's going to have considerable utility once that becomes available. The second piece uh, is forward-looking term sulfur, which is still uh, a distant development. And I think when we look back in, with, uh, with 2020 hindsight, uh, the ARC, we did promise to have a forward-looking term sulfur in place before the end of LIBOR. Uh, in retrospect, I think we also baked in the assumption that, uh, that a lot of derivatives uh, activity would have already migrated to sulfur, so we'd have underlying transactions to support the development of that curve. Uh, that's been slower than I think we anticipated. So when we think about what the ARC should be doing now, what we will be doing now, is spending a lot of time on a framework of what a term SOFA would look like, and then really setting some goals on what types of activity would actually qualify uh, the underlying to actually support a term SOFA, and then really think about product specificity in terms of what products really need that forward-looking term uh, and how to really kind of point the market towards those things for a forward-looking term SOFR. But again, we're very, very reliant on the derivatives market moving. We're very, very reliant on having underlying transactions because it is, in fact, a lack of underlying transactions that got us all here in the first place as it relates to LIBOR. So we want to make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So the way we're looking at this is we're seeing great liquidity in SOFR futures. You know, we're slower moving in swaps, but it's developing. Uh, and I think, you know, what we would say on uh, away from the Fed averages of SOFR, which we will see in the first half of this year, when we think about forward-looking SOFR, I would just echo uh, the, uh, the words of uh, New York Fed President John Williams, which was, don't wait for term rates to get your house in order. Uh, and again, the same theme being that we are, you know, the deadline is a deadline, and the tools that are available are the tools that are available. Uh, so we'll do our best to ensure that, but we are very market dependent on a forward-looking term sofa. So what are the key events that will impact market liquidity in the next 12 months? The things we want to see on the horizon are two things come to mind. First, as we described, the release of the ISDA protocol, which will amend fallback language for legacy derivative contracts, and the single-step adjustment or the big bang of discounting curves from the clearinghouses. Uh, ISDA has contracted Bloomberg to publish the implied fallback spread adjustments on a screen. Once the protocol calculation is finalized, that will give market participants a view of, if they sign the protocol, what their post-2021 outcomes look like. That will be a dynamic spread that they can see every day. And again, give them the tools and the transparency to think about, do they want to convert now or wait till the end of LIBOR? But that will at least engage a conversation that we've, uh, to this point, uh, not been able to have. Once this happens, we'll have the transparency, uh, and one can imagine that market curves should coalesce around these levels. We can't predict that, but certainly if we think that if you sign the protocol and you use these adjustments, the difference between LIBOR and SOFR has now been connected in ways that we haven't seen before. Market participants will see that transparency, and again, that becomes an input to their decision-making on risk management. Uh, of course, you know, the first option incurs significant operational risk, so if you're going to wait to execute the protocols, you still have to do a lot of things at the end of LIBOR, which is to contact all your counterparties, do the work, work through the fallbacks, agree on new valuations, whereas if you're pretty sure what those outcomes look like, a voluntary conversion before that removes all that work from the process uh, and allows you to, uh, to get to that New Year's party a little bit earlier than, uh, than you might have if you're sitting around making a bunch of phone calls on that day. On the clearinghouses, LCH and CME are finalizing their respective plans for adjusting discounting uh, and price alignment interest curves from Fed funds to SOFR. They both have this uh, envision this change to be scheduled for October 2020. 
although they have slightly different mechanics, we are pleased to see that they've agreed on a single, uh, a single date to do this. Uh, however, by either methodology, there will be a significant increase, uh, day one increase in SOFR exposure that exists in the system, and market participants will most likely, in many cases, want to hedge that risk. So this should foster ongoing hedging activity, uh, and there's a lot of work that's, that's taking place uh, at the CFTC with their Market Risk Advisory Committee, Interest Rate Subcommittee, uh, to perhaps contemplate the idea of a... Uh, a round table or a dry run of that big bang sometime in the spring to give market participants a chance to understand uh, how that would all work. What should prudent risk managers be doing now to promote a successful transition for their respective organizations? We've been saying for several years now the best way out of a hole is to stop digging. And any chance uh, where you currently have LIBOR exposure in your organization, thinking about the transition path. So when we look at the ARC checklist, what we really talk about is inventorying LIBOR exposure, whether that be primary LIBOR exposure in terms of products that you own, securities that you hold, contracts that you have, and then secondary, second order, where you're thinking about things that are kind of locked in in terms of your systems, your technology, your ability to process your accounting systems, and all the way through, right through from front to back. So when we, when we look at that, the idea would be to have a checklist in place to risk prioritize the things that you have. So for instance, if you have a cash product that is a legacy product issued long before these fallbacks were available that has an outcome that either converts to the last LIBOR fixing or has no fallback, those are the things that people need to start looking at really appropriately uh, now. So from a risk management perspective, it's identifying LIBOR exposures, identifying the flexibility you have to actually impact the outcome, i.e. through fallbacks or protocols, and finding the ones where there is no outstanding ability to impact and think about what the path forward is on that. So the real goal is, step one, understand your current exposure, understand your current flexibility or ability to actually change those outcomes through protocols and negotiations and so forth, and at that point then take action. The second thing to do is to, is to find ways in your organization, when and where possible, to use SOFR now. It doesn't have to be in large scale. We think about repo and securities lending. The difference between Fed funds and SOFR is fairly minimal, so those who want to convert and begin to utilize SOFR should be a fairly easy conversion, uh, and I think we've had conversations We've seen financing trades go through using SOFR. We've seen, obviously, as we see more and more floating rate notes issued for SOFR, you would anticipate that securities lenders having that on one side of their book might seek to have SOFR on their loan side of their book. So more and more, we think, how do you use it today? But when working through your 2021 budget and strategy, really be sure that you've uh, appropriately considered the full extent of LIBOR transition-related expenses. Uh, if you choose to continue to use LIBOR referencing products, Take a deep look at the fallback language in your contracts. How do they deal with LIBOR cessation? Do they do it in a methodical or an economically sensible way? Or are you actually adding to the problem that you currently have on your legacy book? So there's certainly elements of the transition that are still unclear, uh, as we discussed, term, uh, so for further discussions that are involved on the, you know, the, the lack of a credit spread in LIBOR, that people are going to spend some time figuring out how to better price product without that. But my biggest piece of advice is not to confuse any uncertainty around the precise outcomes uh, of the transition deadline. We have to assume a year-end 2021 deadline, regardless of whether the uncertainties that prevail in the marketplace, and really importantly, I think, is that answering all these problems and having every single tool on the table to have a smooth transition 
may not be done in time for the end of LIBOR. But nonetheless, on everything that we see and the way we look at this, prudent risk management uh, involves agreeing that 12, 31, 21 is the end of LIBOR and backing your plans up from there. And I think that's the work we want to do uh, as we go forward. I, I would tell you that I think that's a really important message. Tom, at some RMA events, there are some people in the industry that feel that LIBOR will not end at the end of 2021. What would your response be to them? What we've really tried to do is, is under any set of circumstances, if you really understand the steps that happen at the end of LIBOR, uh, this is not a, a single, there's not a single decision point here. Mm -hmm. There are 20 banks that currently submit to the panel. Uh, and we've heard certainly from Andrew Bailey, uh, now the governor of Bank of England, but the, the head of the FCA, that banks have indicated they're going to leave the panel. When they do, under European benchmark regulation, he has a responsibility to make a representativeness declaration or check to make sure that there are enough, uh, is, is a representative rate that can continue to be used. If the banks leave, uh, as, as he thinks they will, uh, that test could fail for three reasons. One, that there's not enough banks. Two, that the banks that remain are not covering enough of the market. And three, there's not enough of an underlying market. So if you think about those things, the non-representative declaration then begins triggering a lot of things uh, in the market. So that is where the, that, that really is sort of the beginning of the end of LIBOR, if not the end of LIBOR. So the way we've sort of thought about this is asking people to just make that assessment, think about what they believe the intentions of the banks might be, understand the requirements, the legal requirements of the Financial Conduct Authority who regulates LIBOR, and you can draw your own conclusion. Right? If, if, with those facts, it's kind of hard to get more than a 5% outcome. So you know, the way we think about it, if you think there's a 90 or 95% chance that LIBOR will be gone on the date, uh, date specific at the end of 2021, then as a risk manager, you don't really have much of a choice but to plan to that. And I guess that, that speaks to the, the importance of the IOSCO guidelines. Anything that you could mention to the, the RMA membership about the IOSCO guidelines? You know, I think, I think the RMA had a, great, uh, had, a, had a great discussion as it related to uh, the Fed funds open many years back, right? And the work that the RMA did in bringing the industry together and really asking market participants to look at that rate and understand what that rate was, which was not widely understood at the time but had been used in virtually every securities loan or repo that we had out there. The Fed Funds Open was, was, was a huge cornerstone reference rate for those parts of the businesses uh, that, that certainly RMA has been always uh, deeply, deeply involved in in a leadership role. But when you brought the industry together and they really took a look at what the Fed Funds Open was, it was clearly uh, a, a clear sort of wake-up call to the market. And after going through all the iterations and discussions with, with regulators and other things, the ability to actually take what was a same-day rate, use a next-day rate, and, and get to OBFR, uh, Fed Funds Effective, all the other alternatives that actually do meet the IOSCO standards, uh, it was interesting how quickly the market was able to adapt. And we, we looked at this as, as sort of a small analog to what we're doing with LIBOR. And it's similar work that we can do, really, in making people aware of what LIBOR is today uh, versus what SOFR is. Making people aware the, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, the, the, the problems that have, have gotten us here and the solutions that are now on the table. So when we think about that, uh, if you think about sort of where we began the work with uh, the Fed funds open, getting to where we are today, it's a similar, it's a similar uh, exercise, except uh, in terms of the size, it's much bigger. <laughs>
practices. A lot bigger undertaking. Yeah. So one of the issues that we've heard at RMA events is around, um, you know, it being unclear and, and banks not sure what to do when it comes to communicating with their clients, mm -hmm. what, to, what to communicate, uh, how to communicate. And really, it's, it's also about just plain education of the client because they're not going to understand, you know, why these rates are changing and how it's going to affect them. So, you know, we, we have viewed this, and I think what you can see from the ARC on our website, we'll give you a cheap plug, uh, newyorkfed.org slash ARRC. Uh, but on the website, you can see that there's a, a vast amount of information out there. Uh, additionally, uh, I think on the CFTC website, there's some plain English disclosures that people can use. But this really begins by, you know, really educating clients in ways, in any way that, that works for your organization, uh, why this is happening, how this is happening, and that it is happening. Uh, and I think if you put that all together, people can begin to do their own assessments. But providing that education is the first step. Obviously, from a, from a disclosure perspective, it's important that uh, for those who continue to use LIBOR, uh, that there's a disclosure on what that means and what those outcomes mean and what information they currently have uh, so their clients have an awareness of, of that and there's, a, and there's a clarity and that there's a real focus on conduct risk and how we actually all engage with our clients. And at the end, it's really then hopefully being in a position to, uh, you know, to be a partner uh, with, with, our, with our clients and how we actually exit this process, how we do those conversions, how we can, you know, guide people through this process, either through advice or transactions or, or other things. So, but it all begins with education. It all begins with, in many cases, providing, you know, clients and counterparties with, uh, with uh, you know, with, with news that's not, not, not great news and, and, and letting them know that and taking that risk that, you know, from a competitive perspective, it is important to give your clients all the news and explaining how this works, taking them through that is a critical step Follow that with, you know, in parallel, appropriate disclosures if you continue to use LIBOR, you know, working within your organizations and the people who are responsible for that. And then at the end, uh, ensuring that you, can, uh, that you can be a good partner to clients as, as people begin to actually move through time and do these conversions and switch to these new rates. And I think that's sort of the three steps we see. I'll ask one last one and then, you know, sure. if there's anything you want to ask. Um, you know, one of the other issues that we've heard a lot of banks preparing for is legal risk. Uh, at this point in the game, you know, being give or take two years away from the cessation of LIBOR, uh, do you feel there's anything that the banks could be doing to minimize this risk? I think, you know, it, it, it should be a focus. We're changing, uh, you know, we're changing the reference rate on, uh, you know, in the U.S., well over, you know, 200 trillion in, in the financial contracts. So obviously uh, the legal piece of this is, is a critical work stream. Uh, nonetheless, we would uh, we would point back to these sort of steps that we just laid out, which is, you know, educate clients, be engaged, uh, explain the risks, uh, have the appropriate disclosures, and work closely with clients to do that. So, uh, you know, as much as this will be challenging to a large degree for all of us, I think, you know, the time is now, and if people are not having those conversations now, we it, it's probably a good time to begin them. Uh, you know, we certainly feel that. You know, it is an educational process. It's hard to predict what, uh, what the legal outcomes are, but it's certainly easy enough to understand where they might be and begin that with an education, communication, disclosure process. You know, it certainly makes sense for institutions if they haven't started any part of their LIBOR transition to just start now and, uh, you know, try to get through this, especially with their clients.
Yeah, I think it's, it's a great time uh, for everyone to take stock of where their program is, whether their program is well advanced or whether their program is in early stages, but get that inventory, understand the risk, understand the exposure, engage with clients, spread the word on what's happening. This shouldn't be coming as a surprise to anybody. This work began in 2014. Nonetheless, I do think that uh, to some degree the line of sight in our industry doesn't get much further than two years, so I would say as we've crossed into this under two-year period, we've seen a significant take-up in interest on this topic, appropriately so. Look, the time is now. Uh, it's really important that people begin to address this as we, uh, as we start approaching the deadline. And from a technology and operational perspective, a lot of the things that have to be done, you know, don't, don't happen in a couple of months. And a lot of these things are six to 12 month technology builds that people have to sort of work on. So with the time allotted, uh, you know, I think it's really important now that, uh, that, that people focus on this if they haven't, but really take a good assessment of your program versus the deadline. Uh, and I will say that every day, uh, more and more and more of these puzzle pieces uh, become clear. And as we put it all together, the things that we didn't have a year ago, we have now tax, regulatory, accounting. Uh, you know, we've got fallbacks. We've got, you know, we're very close to a protocol. So the tools are now available. The conditions are good. The environment is moving in this direction. So now it's just really a matter of every organization taking the actions that they need to take to ensure that their, you know, that their organizations are well prepared and that their clients are well informed. Thank you, Tom, for taking the time and the support that you've shown, you know, not just on this topic, but to RMA in the past. And I look forward to working together with you in the future, uh, especially our global consumer and retail risk management conference, which is taking place in Dallas, where you'll, you know, give a talk to the audience on the consumer impacts of LIBOR transition. I've, Fran, I've worked with RMA for, for well over 30 years, and I do think as part of the, uh, the role that your organization can play here is going to be very, very important. The financing markets and the other markets that your organization touches are going to be mission critical to this work, uh, and I look forward to, uh, you know, to working closely with you and the RMA uh, as we move through this transition. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to our podcasts. Whether you're a regular listener or a first-time listener, if you enjoy our podcasts, please provide a favorable rating on iTunes. Thank you.